Hello, and welcome to my lecture series. My name is Nick Lugo, and thank you for being here. Before we get started, I just want to give an explanation or a reminder as to why you're here and why I do these lectures in the first place. It may seem true to you that the reason to come to one of these lectures, or a lecture in general, is to learn, and you wouldn't be wrong, but it's much more than that. You're here to act. The learning part is obvious, but not the acting. Often, I, more than anybody else, know how to act, but simply just don't act. For example, it's not a groundbreaking discovery that going to the gym is important. This is something that we all know. Yet, the hardest part is, and I'll say it again, action. As you know, the lectures that I'll take you through are hero stories, and there is much to learn from them. Therefore, the first lesson to learn from these stories and these movies is a simple one, one that you already know. Heroes follow their heart. They don't think about following their heart. It is action that separates the heroes from the rest. The goal of this lecture is to facilitate thought and action, as the two are so desperately intertwined. Therefore, I make this statement that I say with absolute conviction. If this lecture series does not change the actions you take in this world, then I have failed you. This idea of action is one that I explore with incredible depth in these lectures. Finally, if you're looking for a more direct way to act, I suggest you check out my new book, Breaking Your Bad Habits in 150 Pages, A Hero's Journey. My book takes these abstract lessons and applies them directly to you and any bad habit or human weakness that you might be struggling with. I place you in the shoes of a hero and show you how to be both a thinker and a doer, all in 150 pages for those of you who don't consider themselves readers. You can find the book on Amazon by searching it or by clicking the link in this video. Now, let's get on to the lecture. Let's do it. Hello and welcome. This is lecture four of Beauty and the Beast. And, well, if you haven't seen the first few lectures, it is going to be above. But if you have seen the first three and you are ready to go along, we are ready to expand on, well, this crazy, crazy, <laughs> crazy journey that we're on. So... What happens, right? So we've already established. Lecture two is the establishment of what are all these characters, these tools, these um, these servants, right? These are the repressed personalities of the beast, right? We could say order, extroversion, um, wisdom, all uh, the child hero, right? All these characters are characters that are repressed within the um, within the beast. So now we establish that Belle is going to be the savior of that. Belle is going to come in and um, and she's going to try to figure out how to, well, open them up, right? Open them up. And this is, this is the fundamental archetype of Beauty and the Beast. We've gotten past the idea of Belle opening up. Belle opening up is, there must be more than this provincial life. I'm in a little town. I'm in a town that doesn't really, we'll say, know anything beyond self-interest or know anything beyond the the culture that was established for him and you have someone like bell who's saying no i'm gonna go beyond that so after she goes beyond that we have these two people clash right that's exactly what happens here so what's the next thing that she does 
she meets the repressed personalities, right? She meets, uh, what is it, Lumiere, right? She meets Lumiere, and she meets Cogsworth, and she meets Mrs. Pops, uh, Potts, and she meets all these people, and, um, And that, that's all summed up in the song, you know, Be Our Guest, right? Where, you know, they put on this whole show for her. And, well, it's clear, right? It, it's pretty clear. Once you, once you put everything together now, it's like, okay, what does this represent? It's like, okay, Belle has gone into the beast, right? She's starting to understand the beast, and she realizes that he's an incredibly repressed individual, and that there are an incredible amount of problems that exist within the beast, right? So she meets all these personalities and she understands, okay, why are you not, you know, like, why are you not human? You know, she's asking all these questions. What is wrong with you? But one of the redeeming qualities about Belle is that Belle sees them as human, right? She doesn't see them, see them as objects. She, see, she talks to them. She interacts with them. All these incredible things happen. And, you know, this is partially why she's the redeemer. So, um... So yeah, this this definitely goes along with the idea. It says they, it's been years since we've had anybody here, and we're obsessed. That's exactly what um, that's what the, what is that? That's what the. The dove, right? She's sort of the representation of a dove. That's what um, oh well, she's the mop, right? And that's what she's saying, because. No, well, she's the duster, right? She's the duster. And she's saying that, and that's that's essentially what everybody's saying, because they're saying we've been repressed for so long, and finally we have some outlet to um, to show ourselves. And um, and so that's what happens, and now we're, now we're going to sort of track, you know, as she sort of goes along the beast, you could watch. So the first thing that the beast does is, well... Yeah, the first thing that he does, besides screaming at the father and, and locking him up, is screaming at his own repressed personalities. Whenever he sees the, um, you know, whenever the Mrs. Potts and, and Cogsworth and all of them are trying to get him to knock on her door and invite her to dinner and do all of these things, he just screams at them. He just lashes out with, it, lashes out at them. And, um, well, it shows the state of things. It shows it shows where we begin. It shows where the beast is before he meets Belle. He has so many personalities that are locked within his castle. They can't leave, but they're locked within him. And um and he treats them like crap. Right? He treats them like crap and he's gonna have to figure out a way to well, hopefully by the end, see their humanity, right? See see their from a personality standpoint, we'll say integrate those those personalities into his into his actual personality because the problem right here is the the person that is the personality of the beast is well not good okay it's it's a poorly formed ego in the Jungian sense or just you know more simply it's it's someone that you don't want to be around you know it's somebody who who acts and lives and breathes as somebody who, who, who you don't want to be around. And the, the answer, the key, lies in the personalities that he's repressing. So, um, so, so here's, the, here's the fundamental archetype. Here's the fundamental idea that we're sort of going to be dealing with and and I hinted at it before but but not completely you know so 
it lies in this idea of the West Wing, right? It lies in this idea of, um, of what's her name? Belle, of Belle going into the West Wing. So the thing that they tell her is, uh, Belle, don't go into the West Wing because that's the forbidden place. And, um, and well, the first thing that you know about that is, you know, whenever, whenever you try to tell anybody, don't look there, don't go there, don't think about a purple elephant right now, you know, all these ideas, you're going to do the exact opposite. That's just, that's just part of our human nature. And the reason why, and especially, this is especially important for this, is because we have this natural desire to explore. We have this natural desire to go outside of our bounds and, and well, to understand. So that's exactly what Belle does. She says, okay, I'm meeting all these personalities. I'm starting to understand sort of what the beast is like. And well, she goes into the West Wing. So she goes into the West Wing and she finds all, you know, exactly what we, um, exactly what he doesn't want her to see, right? The idea of the rose and the idea of the mirror. He sees all of it and well, So here's the idea, right? So here's here's the important idea here, you know. So here's her sort of like touching touching the uh, the rose. The idea here is that for the man, right? So so we 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 kind of explained this before, but not completely. So we explained the fact that he's repressed, right? He's a repressed guy. And at the same time, he's not at his full potential. We're talking about the beast here. He's almost unconscious, right? You know, like what is, what is the, um, what is he, right? He's an animal, right? And he's a representation of an animal who doesn't have the potential to become human, or at least to our knowledge, doesn't have the potential to become human. And what does that mean? It, it means that he's almost acting on his own in instincts. And if we're going to go back to the exact idea, that's, that's the Peter Pan character here. That's the, that's the prince sitting on the golden throne, spoiled, getting every single thing that he wants, only acting in his own self-interest. You know, that is... Turning him into a beast is therefore only just the representation of that. The fact that he turns into an animal means that he's just acting on his own animalistic impulses. The problem with this is, well... Very simply, simple, right? The problem is he doesn't have any parts of his humanity, right? He's not a human. And um, and the case that they're trying to make here, and I think this is a really, really interesting but strong case, is that we're animals, right? We're animals, and it is actually more of a privilege to become a human. It's an idea that I've been... That I've been circulating for a for a very long time, but it's a it's a very noble one. So so let's for, first I'll explain to you how this exactly plays out. You know why is it that in this in the intro to the original movie that we are compared or the the townspeople are compared to sheep, right? What is it that makes them sheep? And the answer is because they follow their animal instinct to conform, right? And what is, what is the reason why the, the beast, the prince turns into the beast? It's because he follows his animalistic impulse to self-interest. 
the case that this movie is making here is that it's a bold statement. It's a really bold statement. It's like, it says something like, most people live as animals and most people follow their animalistic impulses. And I don't believe that that's wrong. Like, I think, I think that, well, you know, you meet a bunch of psychologists, they're called the deterministic psychologists, and they'll tell you that we're completely acting on our animal impulses, but, or something like that. But, um, but I don't think that's completely wrong. I don't think that idea is, doesn't have that much merit. You know, I think in, in America, we have something like two thirds of Americans are overweight. It's like, why are we so overweight? And the reason is because if you were to throw food in front of us, unhealthy food, we're going to eat it. It's not like we have the strength, the willpower, the whatever, the, the human aspect of us to turn it down. You know, there's an idea. There was, there's, there's a great experiment that you could do if, uh, if you're a little bit sadistic was the was the term that was used. It was it was in one of the TED talks that I listened to. It was really funny. You know what what you could do is you take a bird, right, and you lock him up in a cage, and you give him uh, you give him food in one corner, and you give him cocaine in the other corner, and you tell him go for it, go for it. I'm giving you unlimited supplies of cocaine. I'm giving you unlimited supplies of food, and um and good luck. Good luck. And what what will end up happening? And this is the unfortunate reality. This is our animal instinct: is that the um, is that the bird will eventually just find the cocaine and then just keep going for the cocaine. It will just it will it will look for cocaine so much and develop such a strong cocaine addiction that um that it never goes for the food. And eventually, even though it was given food, it dies of starvation. And um. Well, it's a sad reality. The sad reality is, you know, this animalistic impulse that we have, this, um, the, these desires that we're given are not complete. And there's, there's something in the human aspect, right? There's something in the human functioning that gives us the ability to say no, right? Like we, we turn down cocaine in general as a society. And well, the only reason is because there's some human aspect of us in there telling us to say no. So the problem with um, essentially every single, I'm not going to say every problem, but many, many problems that exist in, um, in our society in relation, in relation to something like addiction and something like conformism is that all that we do is go off our animal imp instincts. You know, the, the question is, why do people conform? And you could really look at the degree in which that is that plays out in, in the idea of uh, the Milgram experiment. If you've ever heard of it, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy, crazy experiment. But um, the question is, why do we conform? Why do we obey? Why, do we, why don't we form our own individual thoughts? And why do we just sort of follow the mob or follow the, um, well, whatever society tells us to do? And the answer is something like, we are animals. We are pack animals, and therefore we're going to follow our animalist, animalistic instincts. So... The question is, what is Belle doing here, right? You could say, in a literal sense, you could say she's going to find the rose, right? And she, of course she is, but the question is, what does that mean? And and it seems like it seems like the question, the the answer is, she's going into she's going into the part of him that's human, 
right? Because we established this before, you know, the rose is a representation of life. The rose is a representation of something that goes beyond self-interest. We establish this with the, with the old hag that goes and says hi to him, offers him a rose, something that doesn't give you monetary value, but gives you some sort of spiritual value, some sort of humanistic, deep value. And, um, and what is the meaning behind Belle going there and finding it for him? It's simple. It's simple. She's discovering his humanity. And that's not a... Well, it's a very archetypal idea. It's a very, very strong idea. And it could really be explained by evolution. I actually read this book. It was called A Billion Wicked Thoughts. By It was like Ogi Ogas. And um, it was incredible. It was incredible. He explained sort of the sort of the evolutionary process in which in which um, women started choosing men, you know, because if you think of something like a monkey, you think of something like a chimpanzee, you know, they don't choose men. They um, they start ovulating and then which and then men sort of fight amongst themselves and then the most powerful men most like most powerful man is most likely going to win and therefore he gets to have access to the woman he sort of fights them off tells them to go away and then passes his genes on to the next generation the only problem with that and this is an idea that um that he explored in very deeply is is the idea that competence is not important in there humanistic values are not important it's about who's stronger it's about who is who is more dominant, but it's not about who's smarter. And, well, you could say that's why they're chimpanzees, right? That's why that's why they're still monkeys. That's why they weren't able to develop such a highly complex logical brain. But eventually, sometime across the, across the, um, the transition from monkeys to human, we, um, the women were the ones who started saying, wait a second, I'm going to start selecting. Instead of saying, I'm going to let the men select amongst themselves, they say, I'm going to start selecting. I'm going to start saying no to people, and, um, and I'm going to choose a particular set of traits because these particular set of traits are very important. One of those traits happened to be competence, and, and that really makes sense because once we started evolving, it was, you know, the people who were most successful were the people that could hunt properly and the people that could well, create the best bows and create, create the best shelters and create all of, these, all of these highly complex things. And therefore, the idea that women are selecting for, well, the people who are most successful in that area and therefore selecting the most competent men, well, that leads to the drive in evolution. And that's exactly what's happening. So, so the archetypal idea there is that a woman makes a man conscious, right? A woman makes a man human, right? Brings him from his animalistic impulses to a humanistic idea. And that's something that's explored twice in this movie. If you were to remember, what is the thing that turned, what is the thing that turned the prince into a beast in the first place? Rejection from a woman. Because what happens when you get rejected by a woman, the first thing that you do is you say, what's wrong with me? And you become conscious. So that's exactly what that's exactly what happens, and obviously he becomes an he be, he gets rejected by the woman, and then becomes a beast because he realizes that he's inadequate, and and that's that's sort of the idea. So so the idea here is that a woman makes a man conscious, and you could see this in your own life. You could see this really play out across across intimate relationships, which are found to be incredibly interesting. So 
it was it's it's mostly um something that we've really found in the in the research done by Martin Seligman. So Martin Seligman is a he was the head of the American Psychological Association, and he found that he found that women on average are more depressed than men. And we you got to ask the question why, and one explanation, which is which is somewhat simple and so, somewhat can be verified by by experience, is just that women are more conscious than men. You know, women are, well, more aware, and they're often not as impulsive as men, which is a true statement, which is a true statement across the board. But, um, but another potential explanation is, oh, oh, well, well, so here's the, here's the full, um, explanation brought in there. So the so because women are more conscious than men, therefore they feel more. Therefore they they can't repress as much as possible. And um and therefore they feel positive thoughts as well as negative thoughts more. And that's something that we that we could probably that we could definitely verify by by experience. And Martin Seligman kind of proved this in his book. It was uh, Learn Optimism. He explained. He said the reason why women are more depressed than men is not because well, there are many factors, but one of them is because whenever women feel sad, they talk about it, right? They be, decide to become conscious about it. What do men do whenever they whenever they feel sad? They drink. They distract themselves. They do something to bring them away from consciousness. And well, what do you have as a result? What do you have as a result? You have more women are depressed. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing and a bad thing, right? Because women now feel, they're now conscious, but at the same time, they're depressed. Is it a good thing or a bad thing for the men? You could say that, well, they're not depressed, but at the same time, they're just running away. They're just distracting themselves. And so really, it goes both ways. So the answer is, since men love to distract themselves and since men love to run away, what is the thing that's going to make them conscious? What is the thing that's going to say, okay, I'm going to actually have to sort of, you know, confront my, confront my problems? It's a woman. It's a woman because there's nothing worse than getting rejected by a woman. And to develop a relationship with a woman, or we'll say a opposite sex partner, is um, it's, it's more... It requires you to go deeper into yourself. It requires you to understand the other person's humanity instead of you know you know you think of a, you think of the prehistoric man. All they had to do was hunt. It's like no, no, you can't just hunt now. You have to do something more. You have to understand the humanity of the woman, and therefore, um, if you don't, then you will get rejected. And if you and therefore, you must become conscious. You must become human to understand the humanity inside of the woman. And, that's a representation here of the woman discovering the the rose within the man, the woman discovering the life within the man, and um, and well, if we could tie it all together perfectly, it's the woman discovering the repressed humanity within the man, because you know you give you give. <laughs> This this goes with men and women, but it's definitely it's definitely more true amongst men. It's like you give them a you give them some Family Guy, a couch, and maybe some sort of you know 
some something like popcorn and they could they could just sit there and, and amuse themselves for for the next you know four to four to six hours women it's not really the same thing and that, and that's really what it is you know like men are very very much willing to suppress this part of them they're very very much willing to suppress this this human side of them and that's exactly what the beast does so the beast sees her in here and um where is it I think it was right here. So the beast sees her and he kicks her out. He says, "You just you just went you just went into a part that you weren't supposed to see." And well, I don't want you to do that, right? I really don't want you to do that. So um So we could say maybe this is the first step of development. It's the first try. It's the first try for the women to try to open up the guy and um and clearly it was it was a failure. So there was another explanation that I really wanted to give here. I don't know if I don't know if it's completely related. I'll go with no. Actually, I'll go with yes. Screw it. Why not? So the idea that I've been thinking about very recently is the idea of, so we, we were talking about this just now, the idea of evolution, right? When you have something like evolution, it, it goes something like this, you know, monkeys in a tree, monkey falls from a tree, and, um, and monkey is unconscious. Monkey must go through something resembling a hero's journey and become the first human, you know, he must, he must, well, think about it, you know, when monkey falls from a tree, he must face jaguars, snakes, um, Jesus, jaguars, snakes, gorillas, all of these, all of these characters, and, um, and he must become competent and smart enough to, to beat them out, so we'll say that's something like becoming conscious, and then what happens across the evolution process of something like 200,000 years, what ends up happening is you go from a monkey to a human. And what is the difference between a monkey and a human? The difference is a monkey is not conscious and a human is conscious. And somewhere along this path, you go from monkey to human, right? And we could say that's evolution in a nutshell. Now I was thinking, as a human being, do we evolve? Do we go through this same sort of process? And the answer that I came to was almost an undefiable yes. So, so the answer here seems to be an undeniable yes. And, it, and it, it's something like, well, when you're born, you're a baby, right? You think, okay, who's smarter, a chimpanzee or a baby, like a, like a two-month-old baby? And clearly, a, a chimpanzee is a lot smarter. And at some point, the so we could say that as a as a baby, you are you are conscious, you are unconscious, right? You are completely unconscious, completely dependent upon your mother, and at the same time, you know, completely vulnerable. So you're essentially like a monkey that just fell down from the tree, right? So th so this is something that we could we could fundamentally come to an agreement on is that at one point we're a monkey, right? And that that could be you know anywhere from two years old to the 30-year-old living in his mother's basement because you could say that someone like that has taken up no responsibility and is therefore just acting off their primal instincts. And um, 
or something like a heroin addict, something like a something like a drug addict or an alcoholic. You know, we look at those people and we say, okay, they're essentially acting off their primal instincts, and obviously that's the fully articulated extreme of that. But but that's that's essentially right. So so here's the. Here's the fundamental idea. So I just took a, I just took the entire idea of evolution and brought it down into the individual, and it really relates to this idea of the beast. You know, the idea of, in in this case, the monkey. You know, you ask the question. It's not, or at least we come to the final conclusion that it's not a question as to. It's not a question as to whether or not we are the beast. It's as a question of when we shed that idea of the beast because no matter what as a child you know like when you're two years old you are a monkey right and maybe when you're 10 years old you're a monkey and most likely you will be and maybe when you're 15 years old you act like a monkey mostly off your primal instincts not really conscious about what's going on and not really you know understanding the world from a we'll say from a from a deeper perspective and and then you know you you keep taking that you keep extracting that and you ask the question when do you become adult when do you become an adult when do you become a fully mature being and when if if we're going to if we're going to you know sort of tie all these together when do you finally finally in this idea of adulthood adopt the personalities of we'll say Cogsworth and Lumiere and and Mrs. Potts and and all these different characters, right? When when does this happen? And when do we shed this idea of the beast? And um, and that's a better way of looking at it. It's a it's a better way of understanding it because it really helps you understand. You know, this beast is something that lies within every single one of us. It's it's something that, well, never goes away. That's a, that's another strong idea. It's like even when you become adult, even when you become an adult, you know, you never really get rid of this beast. This beast is always something that lies within you. You're always an animal, and um, and God, the social media companies have been able to prove this so so incredibly well. It's like, how easily can you turn somebody f- from a fully functioning human being? into somebody who just sits there and scrolls for two hours. And, well, if this was 30 years thirty years ago, I, I would have said that would have been, you know, I, I bet you, well, I would not have been alive, but, you know, the people, I think, would have said that's almost impossible. It's almost impossible that you could get someone to do it so easily, but the social media companies have, have proven time and time again that all it takes is just a little trigger. All it takes is a little, you know, a little, a little notification for you to go from a fully functioning, articulate human being having a conversation to someone who sits on their phone for the rest of a, a dinner meal because, well, we're animals. And our, our animal impulses in that moment are saying, keep scrolling, keep scrolling. So, um, so this is the idea. The idea is that at one point, at one point, and this is exactly what Beauty and the Beast is about, is that we're going to have to sort of overcome that and... That idea is represented in the figure of Gaston, right? Gaston is the perfect representation of, we'll say, well, we are we already explained essentially what he is, but for our intents and purposes, he's going to be the representation of what the beast was, right? He's the representation of the prince, and well, 
it's pretty obvious, right? It's pretty obvious that um that he doesn't care about anything beyond that's a good way of looking at it. He's essentially an, he's essentially a monkey. Think of him like that way. You know, like every single thing that he does is based off dominance. Every single thing that he does is based off of um power and social structures and moving up some sort of, you know, we'll say social ladder, but at the same time there's really no cognition there. There's really nothing that that he does where you really say, "Okay, he's thinking," you know? So and that's that's a representation of someone who never grows and well So the beast is eventually going to have to fight that off, right? The beast is eventually going to have to sort of figure that out. But right now, we have something like Belle coming in, and she um, she finds the rose, right? She finds, we'll say, the hidden humanity within himself. And that, you could also say that's a, that's a symbol of maturity, right? Like what she's doing here is she's essentially saying, from the age of 0 to 12, you really... You really just acted on your own self-impulses, right? Like, you know, you're you're just completely self-interested and and you never really cared about other people, right? You know, it's it's you just don't, right? You just don't. You're a kid and and you you haven't really embraced that. And then and then the thing that happens is maturity comes around and real life comes around and and you realize that wait a second, I have some really positive incredible relationships and you start to become conscious of the fact that, wait a second, this is more than just self-interest. This is something that's, we'll say, beautiful, something that's life-giving. And um, and that's partially the reason why the rose, um, all the petals of, of the beast's rose fall apart by the time he reaches 21. It's because it's like, it's essentially saying, here's the process of maturity. By the time you reach 21, and that's that's sort of an arbitrary number, but but we'll go with 21. You know, 21 is the we'll say fundamental marker of adulthood. It's a uh, by the time you reach that that point, the question is, are you mature, and have you recognized life, or are you still just a self-interested prick? Um, because that's that's what the prince was, and that's what Gaston is. And um, and well, isn't that the fundamental question? Isn't that the fundamental question? So now, take the two ideas and put them together, right? You have something like evolution, where a monkey turns into a human, right? That's, that's the entire thing. A monkey has to go through all these trials to become a human and transform. It's like, okay, what are you when you're a child? What are you when you're maturing? You're a monkey, essentially, right? You're just something acting off primal animalistic impulses because if you look at something like a child if you look at something like a middle schooler and high schooler they are pretty much acting off off impulse and um and what must they do they must come come and we'll say transform from something like a animal something like an instinctual animal to something like a human something resembling a responsible adult and 
Well, that's why these stories are relevant, right? That's why whenever you take something like an evolution story, right, or a creation story, which is really, really common, like you were to think, okay, you could say the Bible has a creation story. You could say that evolution itself is simply just a creation story, the the story that I just told you. You could say Star Wars offers a creation story. Um, Moana offers a creation story. All of these movies and all of these stories that we, that we have embedded in our culture, they have a, you know, a a framework as for how the world is structured and how the world came to be. You know, that's that it's also in the matrix, right? In the matrix, it's something like Well, let's see if it's relevant. Ah, but I'll still Well, I'll, I'll give you Moana cuz Moana is a little bit more re- relevant. In Moana it says, "In the beginning, the world was only ocean. So there was no land and it was completely chaos. There were no humans." And then the islands were pulled up and and God essentially came down and and gave and made order out of chaos and then gave humans life. And, well, you could say that's exactly what a mother does, right? It's the same idea, right? You know, the, by the, when you were born, you were completely chaotic and you're just completely acting off impulse. And then you could say God, which is either mother or culture or... Um, God, it could be so many things. Structure, whatever it is, decides to, well, create order out of this chaos. Create lands, create structure out of this chaos. And, well, that's why all these stories become relevant. Because then it's it's not saying, it's not just a creation story anymore. It's not just a story of letting it happen. And that's what Batman's sort of struggling with, right? What Batman's sort of struggling with is... Well, he can't really accept change, right? So something changed, something happened, and he says, there's nothing out there for me. He says, I'm not going to move on. I'm just going to stagnate. I'm just going to stagnate and die. That's that's his ideology. And well, so that's the problem, right? That's the problem. He says, I just can't move on. I just can't change. But, well, this is a great way of looking at it, where it is Alfred right? Alfred comes along and he says, that time has passed, right? That time has passed. You are no longer a, well, Rachel's no longer here. Life happens. Life is not easy. And, you know, for example, I got into a relationship and we ended up breaking up. It was not an easy breakup, right? It was like a year long relationship. The way that you look upon it is saying, wait a second, maybe I shouldn't dwell on it. I shouldn't, well, hold on to it so much that I that I don't look into the future. I say, no, 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 no. Things are going to change. Life happens. Nature is always in constant flux, right? We're always making a change. That's a very yin-yang idea, right? The the way in the in the Taoist philosophy. And um and the idea is very simple. The idea is very simple. You must constantly keep changing. Never stagnate, never keep holding on. Um I see this often in intimate relationships. I also see this often in friendships. You know, it's it's really tough to lose a best friend, right? It's really tough to lose somebody that's that's really close to you. But well, that's just the unfortunate reality of life. Like you will, and 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 the question is really, what do you do about it? And I'm just really happy. You know, this is just a. I just want to take a moment here to just 
show some appreciation. Like, this movie handles some really, really tough ideas, and this entire trilogy handles some really tough ideas, and the question of what do you do about it is, well, it's answered in here, right? It's, it's, it's answered in this movie. So, so what Alfred tells Batman is he says, you know, I always had this dream. He, he really gives him essentially something like a dream where he says, I always knew that when you came back, I always knew that when you tried to go for Rachel, it just wasn't meant to be, right? It really, you were kind of stuck. And, um, and I knew there was nothing there for you. So my hope, right, my entire hope for you, and, and Alfred, as we sort of established, you know, throughout the, throughout the lecture series, is that Alfred is a figure of, his unconscious motivations, sort of like when you watch a Disney movie when there's when there's an animal on their shoulder, right? Sort of mimicking their their unconscious desires, right? Mimicking their animalistic desires. That's that's exactly what Alfred did. Alfred is. Alfred is essentially saying, "This is what you want deep down. Deep down, you want to move on, and you just want to get over the fact that, well." Things happens and life sucks, right? And the, and the only way to get over that, much more simply, is through this dream, right? The dream is very simple. I wish that I saw you moving on. I wish that I saw you in a place outside of Gotham doing things that are completely different than Batman. I want you to give up this, this idea of Batman and to run away, right? Well, run away is the wrong word. Probably something like... Move on. Move on. Embrace the change. Accept the change. And don't let it become a scar like it did for Anakin. Don't let it become... Well... Don't let it kill you, right? Don't let it let you stagnate because... Well, this is one of the things that I've noticed. So, what happened for me is, is something that I think is... Well, hopefully it could be really helpful, you know? So, what happened for me was, yes, I had a relationship... And it was, it was unsuccessful, you know, successful, but unsuccessful, you know, and it took me about two or three years to finally unpack it. Like, like I would be sitting there and I'd say two, three years later, I think, I think I've been able to unpack it completely at this point, but two or three years later, I'm sitting there, I'm like, wow. I didn't realize that, that this was the reason why in the, something like, this was the reason why our relationship fell apart, or this is the reason why we broke up, or this is what I did wrong, or this is what she did wrong, and this is how we could have made it, made it work. It's like, it took me years for me to do that, and, and the problem is, as I'm sort of sitting there trying to unpack it, what I'm really trying to do is unpack the lies, right? I'm really trying to unpack the, the mental blocks that I, that I put in there, because what happens whenever you well, in a breakup, right? You, you, there's always something like an ego involved. Always something like, well, I was right and she was wrong. You know, of course she was wrong. I'm always right. What are you talking about? So whenever something like that happens, what, what I was really struggling with was, was fighting off the lies, fighting off the stagnation, sort of breaking away the mental barriers that, that was sort of put into me. And I think the same thing really goes for 
goes for friendships. I think that's a really, really good way of looking at it. It's like, you know, whenever you and your friend get into a fight, and this is this is one of the rules that I've been able to adult. So I'm going to be essentially just watching all the other superiors or people who are more developed really go through their hero's journey. What's really interesting is Anna here. So she she's more of a superior. You know, she's lived. You know, they establish her as someone who's lived longer and therefore should be. Uh, Olaf said, you are older and thus all-knowing to Anna. And, um... And that's really what he, he sees her as, someone who's wiser and older. And they end up singing a song. It's called Some Things Never Change. And um, and Anna has this belief that throughout life, in, in all of this, you know, um, right now things are going good. And when things are going good, she has this tendency to believe that things will always go good. And um, you'll see that's incre it's incredibly, incredibly naive. I mean, if you look at it, um, you'll see that in your own life, you know, things never, things always change, right? Things never stay the same. And, um, and no matter what, well, one of the greatest quotes I've ever heard is the only constant in the world is change because at the same time, you're always getting older. You're always maturing. Your biological clock is always ticking towards death. And, um, well, that, that makes things always change. And obviously the world around you is not going to stay the same either. So, um, so it's funny because Olaf is is looking up to Anna and saying, you know, you are older and thus all-knowing, but therefore she's giving him the wrong advice. He's, she's saying that some things never change. And, um, and you'll see the lesson, you know, the, the lesson that, that we're really seeing throughout just the first five minutes, first 10 minutes, which is really sort of, I guess, uh, underneath everything is that, you know, your authorities don't know everything. Right. Like, you know, the father goes and tells Elsa, don't go in there when she really should have gone in there. You know, Anna tells Olaf that something's never changed, but she's really wrong. And I think that's a really powerful lesson. Really, it's and it's it's really true. It's um something's never something's. Uh, oh, my God, I'm sorry. Um, your authorities do not know everything. And um, and you must really question their ideas. Actually, one of the one of the greatest things that I, I actually really like in the Christian tradition is the word Israel. Israel is, uh, he was, he was a, um, he was an angel or no, he was a man who, uh, who wrestled with God and the word and, um, and he was a man and, um, his name wasn't Israel yet, but his name was Israel because he saw, it wasn't sure if it was an angel or if it was God himself, but he actually wrestled with him throughout the night. And the word Israel actually means he who wrestles with God. And, um, and it's a powerful lesson. It really says, you know, a good, a good Catholic, a good religious person is not somebody who blindly accepts the rules. It's someone who intellectually wrestles with God and, um, and challenges their th these conceptions that might be wrong, you know, like obviously maybe God could be right, maybe the Bible could be right, but maybe our interpretations of it could be wrong. So, um, so always the lesson here is always wrestle with the authority or God. So now you go back to Elsa, and um, Elsa Elsa is an interesting character. She contrasts directly with Anna. You know, right here, she's saying, she's actually sort of in the right mindset. She's saying, hey, listen, I don't love change. Change is kind of scary, right? Like, why would, like, things are going well right now. I'm the queen of Arendelle. And, uh, and things have kind of, like, settled down. So why would I want to go and change anymore? But the thing is, she realizes that change is necessary and that she must go through it. Um, 
There's an interesting idea here that I really like, and it's it's very prominent in the self-help journey, the self-help community. It's all, it's all about accepting discomfort and being willing to, uh, being able to live in discomfort. And I like that because, you know, being comfortable means not wanting to see change, right? Being comfortable is the exact opposite. It's like, you know, imagine being comfortable on a couch. If you're sitting on a couch, you don't want change. You love exactly where you are right now. You love to be relaxed. And the problem is then you will never want to change. You'll never want to get up. You'll never want to do anything like that. So mental, mental comfort is the same thing. It's why would you want to change? Why would you want to go out and explore the unknown? Why would you want to face your fears? Why would you want to go and start a new career? If, uh, if you're comfortable, you know, that's, that's the biggest problem with being a lawyer and a doctor and an accountant. If you're miserable, but at this, if you're a miserable doctor, lawyer, or accountant, if you aren't happy and you want to change careers, but you can't, the problem is you might be too comfortable, comfortable. And if you're very, very comfortable, then, um, then you're missing out because things are going to change around you and you're going to be stuck behind. Uh, they also gave a nice little, uh, a nice little nationalist statement. I obviously, or I'm not going to say obviously, but, but this is, this is an important point that these lessons are universal. So not only does this idea apply to Elsa and her life, not only does it apply to our life, not only does it apply to the world around us and whether or not things change, this also applies to government. And it says, um, you know, they say, I promise you the Arendelle, the Arendelle flag will always fly. And that's part of the some things never change. You know, they assume that um, the Arendelle flag will always be a constant. And, um, and it's just beyond true that things always change. So really... The Arendellian flag will not always fly. Um, so now we get into Elsa's hero's journey. I find, I find, I actually get the reason, the thing that drew me to this movie was Elsa's hero's journey. Just absolutely incredible. So what happens is she's sitting there and uh, it also happened while she was over here. She actually hears this um, sort of like a song that's really being sang to her. And, um, and all she does, it's just a constant ringing in her ear. And, um, but nobody else does. It's, it's, it's her individual call to adventure. And, um, and that's, that it was, it was a great thing because you find that it keeps, it keeps bothering her throughout the movie. So I think one of the greatest lessons in that is once you hear your calling, it doesn't leave you. It really doesn't. And, um, actually the movie inception really, really does a great job with that. You know, there was a, um, I don't, I don't know if you saw it. It's a very Christopher Nolan movie, but um, he's a director and he does a great job. What he does is they show one of the main characters, this girl, they show her, you know, the world of the unconscious and the world of dreams and being able to go into your unconscious and being able to go into your own dreams. And um, what happens is... Um, she leaves because she says it's scary that uh it's weird it's it doesn't make sense you know why would i want to pursue my spirit this is so weird and then um the main character the movie leonardo, leonardo DiCaprio says don't chase after her she's already seen this she's already seen this new incredible world she'll come back there's no way she can live her life without by just putting that away she's eventually just going to come back and that's what she does there's actually uh carl Jung. he's uh He's the one who essentially just created all these archetypes. He, um, psychoanalyst, he, he would literally sit there and there was this one lady who was, uh, being analyzed by him and he got a little upfront with her. You know, she said, uh, 
She asked Yoon, she said, uh, this is in a therapy session. She goes, why does everybody hate me? And who, well, he's from the pit, so he's going to send all the emotions, all the things that you've been pushing down over the years, the lies, the deceit, the self-deception, as well as the, we'll say, something like repression. Every single thing that you've been trying to push down is going to emerge back up and Well, I'll leave it at this. I'll leave it at this. I think the this is really this is really going to be a relatable subject for yeah, people who are struggling in their not only intimate relationships, but relationships in general and and hope to improve them and hopefully want to make their relationships a little bit more open. I think that's one of the things that I struggle with really often is that is that trying to make your relationships a full open dialogue and not leaving any sort of like elephants in the room and not leaving any any deceptions unsaid, you know, like I see those just way too often and I think this is the this is the perfect way to sort of manifest that not only in relationships but within yourself. So that is the end of lecture one, and, well, I hope you enjoy the next one. We're moving on. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, please subscribe. A while ago, and that's exactly what... Um, you know, when, when Scar told him to run away, that's exactly what confronting your past is all about. You know, he's got to really face this, essentially the same exact obstacles that he's faced before, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, but almost the same exact things. And when he does that, it's almost as if you're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, you know, if you're struggling with, um, well, I guess anything. Anything that you've been avoiding. So, for example, anybody who's trying to do public speaking, I really like that example because it's so, because everybody struggles with it, you know? So, if you're trying to figure out how to do public speaking and do it well, you know, it's not like the the challenge itself changes, right? It's, it's not like it's a different public speaking event. It's not like the first time you speak, you're going to have to speak in front of 500 people instead of 20 people. It's like, no. All you got to do is speak in front of 20 people, no matter if it's now, tomorrow, or five years from now, you just got to speak in front of 20 people and um, you're confronting the same enemy, you could say, same enemy, right? And um, and that's exactly what Sim is doing here. You know, he, he pulls the same trick, Scar. He says, um, must this all end in violence is actually what he used on, um, on Mufasa. And then he says... Um, he says, oh, so you haven't told everybody your little secret. And he's talking about um, the idea of Mufasa being killed. And obviously, you know, earlier in the in the movie, Scar blames Simba for, um, where is it, where is it, where is it? Right here. Scar blames Simba and said, Simba, you are responsible for Mufasa's death. And while it's somewhat ambiguous, I think I think we could come to a, a nice little conclusion that maybe it wasn't Simba's fault, right? Maybe this is sort of a little bit manipulation, obviously, because Scar was manipulating him, and um, and obviously Scar was the one who ended up killing him. So I mean, we could we could remove a lot of fault from it. You know, that's exactly what um, in Batman Begins, Batman or Bruce Wayne was really struggling with that. You know, he was the one who lured 
his parents into the alleyway where his parents were killed, but it wasn't intentional. It wasn't really his fault. And um, we could say, we could say that Simba shouldn't feel guilty about it. You know, that's, that's something about it, but he still hasn't confronted that himself. You know, he, um, he confronted that he, he should be someone that he isn't, right? And that was something with Mufasa, but he hasn't confronted this fact. And this was the thing that got him out of his hero's journey in the beginning, right? This was the thing that got him out of um, out of Pride Rock. So this is something that he needs to confront. And um, well, I guess this is the most necessary thing that he needs to confront. So um, he doesn't confront it well. That's 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 the first thing to do because he still feels responsible. He still doesn't understand exactly what happened. He still hasn't come to terms with it. So um, so Scar takes advantage of him, you know, sort of pushes him into a corner, and then he gets him in this beautiful, beautiful scene right here. He gets him right in the same spot where he had Mufasa, right? Like that's a that's a great way. That's a really really powerful way of showing, you know, they are the same person. And it is Simba's job to go further than where his father was. And that since they were put in the same exact test, one must pass and one must fail. Right. And that's exactly what happens here. So, you know, this is what I call, or what Joseph Campbell calls the belly of the whale. The belly of the whale is essentially the point where you are struggling the most, right. Where you are, um, where everything sort of seems like all hope is lost, you know, sort of that moment. And, um, and you're in trouble, right? Usually it's mortal danger. You know, it really came from um, the idea of the the book, the story of Jonah in the Bible um, called The Belly of the Whale, but also, you know, um, it happened in Nemo, right? In Nemo, what happened is um, you have Marlon who's trying to find his son and his problem in the entire movie is that he couldn't, he couldn't give his son independence, right? Like he, he was so sheltering of his son. And um and while well, they're in the belly, they're in the belly of the whale. They're they're holding on to the whale's tongue, to be exact, you know. And they're about to go into the belly of the whale, and um, and he's with Dory, and Dory says, and Marlon's sort of holding on to the tongue, about to fall into the whale, or Marlon's holding on to the tongue and also holding on to Dory, kind of like saving her, you could say, you know, if if he lets go, she falls into the in the, into the stomach of the whale, and um, well, Dory says, you need to let me go. You need to let go and trust me because we could get out of it. We could do this. And um, Dory says, you need to let go. Right. And that's, that's, you know, it's the point of mortal danger. It's the point where you're struggling the most, but it's also the time where you learn something about yourself, where you go through the strongest period of transformation is in this belly of the whale, because most people don't make it out of the belly of the whale. That's the thing, right? So Marlon needs to learn in that point of time to let go. Right. And, you know, that also could be applied to Nemo, right? Where he needs to let go and stop being so sheltering of Nemo. That's the main message that you get in the entire Finding Nemo story. It's the same thing here. Same thing with Simba. Different message, but, you know, um, Scar gets him in this point of mortal danger. There's fire underneath him. If he drops him, just like Mufasa, uh, Simba will die. And, um, and Mufasa whispers into um, Sim's ear, I killed Mufasa. And though, although I feel like it's quite direct, right? Like I feel like Simba should have really figured it out for himself, but, um, but it really shows that Scar is very egotistical and that, you know, he's very, um, yeah, egotistical is a good word or cocky, cocky, you could go with that. And um, well, 
this is the point where he finds out something about himself. The thing that he's been avoiding confronting the entire time, he finds out in the belly of the whale. He finds out in the point where all hope is almost lost. And um, well, he's almost swallowed by the belly of the whale, you could say. And, um, and well, he comes out of it, right? He comes out of it. And, um, and now that he's learned the truth, he gets this extra motivation, which is obviously true, right? Now that he's confronted the thing that he hasn't confronted this entire time or his whole life, you could say, his whole adulthood life, now that he's been able to understand the truth and he's been able to, um, well, become himself, right? And really understand, put all the pieces together in himself when he's able to do that, you know, um, well, he's, a, he's able to confront Scar emotionally. That's a good way of saying it. You know, he, he, he could beat Scar physically, right? Scar, Scar throughout this entire movie, this whole time, that Scar is the weaker of the two, right? Like Scar was weaker than Mufasa. Scar was weaker than Simba. You know, it's, it's it's not really a fair fight for um for the physical battle between Simba and Scar, but really the emotional battle is what is the most important. You know the fact that Simba was being manipulated the entire time and controlled his in his emotions by Scar, and um, this belly of the whale moment is the moment where he can where he confronts his emotions and he's able to um well win you could say. So um. Scar sort of accepts defeat right away and Simba says run because obviously it's sort of a, you know, run, run away, never return. That's exactly what Scar told Simba a while ago. But Scar says he might as well fight. So this is this is the final confrontation that you've seen almost every scene or almost every movie, almost every hero's movie, you could say. And um, well, man, would you want to be fighting with that? That's a little brutal. Comes in and um, man, this is a great animation, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, um, this, this is the perfect symbol of, of pure evil. You could say you, you could imagine scar and the devil is almost synonymous in this picture, you know? And, um, and one thing, one thing that I, that I am really interested in is watching how over time, the versions of the, we'll say villain, the, the versions of the villain have gotten so much less devilish, you could say. You know, I'm, I'm starting to see it. So, I mean, you know, when you think about who is the worst villain of all villains, it's probably like the devil, something like that. Lucifer, right, you could say, or, um, or Hades or whatever, right? And Scar is almost seen as something like that. You know, if you look at someone like, um, like Voldemort, you know, Voldemort and Harry Potter, these villains are so evil that um, all you must do is confront them and, and destroy them, right? Like that, that's really the goal. The goal is for them to die. But as you watch throughout time, I've been watching, you know, there's more and more movies, Frozen 2, for example, Moana, um, some Captain America movies, Captain America, Civil War, um, no, no, Captain America, Winter Soldier, and, um, there was one other one. And oh yes, Batman be Batman begins. No. Something something like that in Batman Begins. But you see, you know, all these all these heroes, they see the villain as somebody who is fixable, you could say. Somebody who is, you know, 
maybe 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 killing them isn't isn't the right answer maybe maybe they could be revived or fixed in some way Voldemort scar um you know Hitler what the way that we depict him obviously you know um there there were some you know think about it this way there were some uh Catholic there were some Catholic and Protestant um priests who said give me 30 minutes with him right like their ideology was give me 30 minutes with him and I could fix him or, or I could work with him and we could, we could confront the reason why he's so anti-Semitic and, and wants to kill 6 million Jews, all these things, right? And I don't know which one's the right answer. I don't know which one's the right answer. It's, it's tough because, you know, you got to ask the question, can someone like Scar be rehabilitated? Can someone like Scar be, um, obviously he has some emotional trauma, right? We could say because he has a scar, right? Like that's, I think that's the symbolism behind scar. He's, he's gone through things in the past and, um, and there's no attempt to heal him. That's the problem. There's zero attempt to heal him. You know, he's, um, he's always painted as this villain. He's always painted, like nobody even tries to approach him with any sort of respect or any sort of dignity and um you gotta ask the question you know is that useful is that is that helpful and um i can't even tell you the answer to that question i can't the one thing that i can say is our method of our method of punishment in society has been um well fail yeah, yeah, it is. It has been. A, it has been a failure, and you know, part part of it is because you know, if you take somebody, for example, treat them with lack of dignity, lack of respect, like a prisoner, for example, and you just throw them into prison, and then you, you know, we have this, we have this idea in American society of rehabilitation, but the thing is, have we really rehabilitated people? You know, it's such a such a tough question. And the answer is no, right? The answer is straight up no. You know, about fifty percent. So recidivism. 50% of prisoners are, there's a 50% recidivism rate amongst prisoners. And what that means is that 50% of the time, if you go to jail, you will be back. You'll be back in jail. And the question is, why, you know, why haven't, why have 50% of people cycle in and out of jail? It's just, our method of punishment doesn't seem to, to be working. So the question is, does compassion work? It's a tough question. It is a tough question. But in this case, you're going to see Sybil wins the fight. And, um, you know, you sort of get this little poetic justice type uh, type deal in here. And that's exactly what happens. You know, he gets taken down by his own subjects. So, um, so Scar said, he's like, hey, listen, it wasn't my fault. It was the hyena's fault. You know, he says that to Simba and the hyena's heard. And, um, well, that's sort of the manipulation you know it's the, the backfiring of scars manipulation and lying the fact that he um he gets torn down by his own people his own people start to realize hey listen the only reason why i like scar was because he was in power right like i would get close to him because he was in power he was in power and um well he was somewhat you know he, he would give them he would give them some sort of leadership right but now that he's not in power and he doesn't have, he doesn't, he doesn't have any ability to, to lead anymore. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's the perfect irony that I guess that really comes in. And, um, well, 
now we are reached the final point. The final point is we have confronted our demons. What happens next? You must have the transformation. You must have, you know, the, um, the unity that comes with confronting because it is a beautiful feeling really confronting those our demons confronting your um your problems your struggles you know your habits all these all these things being able to being able to confront it head on and not run away from it like we normally do you know that's exactly that's the whole purpose of this movie and um well i mean you must be rewarded for it right like that's that's the biggest thing so i mean you know right now you have simba um you have rafiki stands here and he says um He says, "Hey, listen. You must take your place in Broad Rock, right? You must, you must become king again." And it's it's very significant that this is the self because now he has confronted everything and he's essentially peeled back all the layers of you know his repression, his um, well, his struggles, you could say, and he is now met with the self. And um, well, he gives him a nice hug, you know. And uh, wait, 